This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So what can often happen there is that if the muscles are not actually able at the first start of, say, diabetes, when it's not, say, well managed, or, um, when the muscles are not actually able to uptake the substrate to allow for that building, in a sense, um, that muscle protein synthesis, that can result in um, in some of those uh, declines in, in um, muscle mass. Your cells are more receptive to insulin in those two hours after we train, and that's especially where someone with type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, that's your opportune time to get glucose-based foods into the cells efficiently and, you know, and to use them to make more glycogen rather, you know, going down pathways we don't want them to go down. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. From the age of 50, muscle strength and mass are on a slow decline. Apart from ageing, physical inactivity, even bed rest for 10 days, accelerates muscle mass loss. It's the same with type 2 diabetes, except there's a bi-directional relationship. Type 2 diabetes causes muscle mass losses, and low muscle mass contributes to poorer health outcomes in those populations. Not only is skeletal muscle the primary storage site for protein, Protein, but also for glucose disposal, with 80% of our glucose taken up into muscle in a postprandial state. Interestingly, this is 60% lower in people with type 2 diabetes. Dr. Dominique Kondo, also known affectionately as Dr. Dom, is the sports performance dietitian for the Richmond Football Club, having spent eight years in a similar role for the Geelong Football Club. There's been some interesting work as well to show that in more animal studies with, with diabetes, that there's certain proteins that are actually really high in muscles that have been showing to have a reduction in, in muscle mass um, versus those that are more protected and th th those proteins are actually expressed at lower levels. So we're sort of looking into links as to whether there's actually um, certain proteins that build up in muscles that almost prevent 
the muscle protein synthesis from taking place in cells in you know in, in diabetic sort of cells. It's a really interesting area, and you know, and I don't think we know the precise mechanism that results in that decline in muscle mass, but we definitely know there's a link, and it's probably a combination of not being initially able to uptake um, the fuel needed to allow those muscles to flourish. Then it's the insulin spikes, um, you know, that that can cause a concern as well, and, and potentially some buildup of certain uh, proteins within cells that can actually prevent that process from taking place as well. So it, it could be a mix of a few different things. And how is muscle working in that? I'm really interested in that mechanism. How, how does muscle work? So in order for muscle protein synthesis to occur, we need to stimulate a pathway that we call, call the mTOR pathway. The more muscle mass you have, the more, I guess, stimulation is needed, the higher the amount of, of that protein and that fuel we need. So, you know, carbohydrates with an insulin response will stimulate that pathway, as would um, some key amino acids in there as well. So essentially, the more of that muscle mass you have the more of these few and these nutrients we need to stimulate that process um, and, and to keep it sort of active. So, so it's that that's sort of where the link is happening. And, and and it comes down to our basic energy systems. It's just that the more we have of that muscle mass, the, the more substrate we need for those energy systems. Mm, that's interesting. And so and then it becomes a vicious cycle, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and I guess we know that, you know, the way that um, muscles work, we're in a continuous, um, you know, where we, we get um, build up muscle and their degradation. There's a continuous sort of um, cycle. So uh, essentially, when you're not getting that uh, muscle building part of that happening with the muscle protein turnover, it almost does lead to that endless cycle where you just your net muscle turnover is going to be a lot lower. And, and you know, that that can obviously continue for some time. So it's a really, about with, with diabetes, it's really about making sure that we're managing those blood sugar levels in particular and those insulin levels so that we're not actually getting those big waves of, of um, you know, the differences which can potentially lead to some of the concerns. Mm. And um, let's say um, the person with type 2 diabetes as the example, for someone like them, like you said, we, we need to get their blood glucose levels under control and perhaps their insulin resistance as well. What about the role of resistance exercise in that population group? Is that another way, obviously, to try and get them to do ex resistance exercise to help build their muscle? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So if we're thinking about the stimulus for building muscle, there's a, there's a few and, and resistance exercise is a main, um, stimulus as is consuming protein. And, you know, what the studies have shown is that if you do exercise without any, um, substrate or fuel in the system, then you're going to get an increase in muscle protein synthesis. Um, if you just eat without resistance exercise, you'll see an increase because you've got more of a pool of those amino acids. But if you have both together, Together, that's when you really see that heightened impact. So it is both um, both of the resistance exercise and the having the right substrate at the right time that can really help with some of these issues. I guess again, if you're you know doing resistance exercise and and eating at, at the right times to get the substrate in, but your diabetes is not well controlled, then that may still not be an answer to that. But but obviously, if you've gone through a period of seeing um, some of the decline and then you've got things in control if it's newly diagnosed say and you're then you're working with your team and, and your insulin levels are more regulated your blood sugar levels are under control then you can definitely help the situation by looking at training and and um, food intake 
Kira Sutherland is a naturopath and sports nutritionist who agrees that timing of eating and resistance exercise is key for these patients. When we exercise, we potentize our cells to be more receptive to insulin. And so when we don't fuel ourselves, especially after exercise, you know, everyone does this whole, oh, I want to keep fasting. And, you know, we have this beautiful metabolic window where you are more efficient at getting fuel into the cells because you've got glycogen synthesis active, insulin you know, I, I often say insulin is more potent. That's not actually correct. Your cells are more receptive to insulin in those two hours after we train. And that's especially where someone with type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, that's your opportune time to get glucose-based foods into the cells efficiently and, you know, and to use them to make more glycogen rather you know, going down pathways we don't want them to go down. So again, it comes back to exercise and how that facilitates such a healthier body. And the, the other thing a lot of us don't even realize is when you exercise, you actually get a little bit of glucose entering the cell even without the use of insulin. That's interesting. And you, you mentioned before that one of the best ways to improve muscle mass is through resistance exercise. Yes. Obviously, we need the, the protein as well, which, as you mentioned, is a, is a big factor, isn't it? We oh, need more than the RDA. The RDA just kills me every time. <laughs> Look, we're not talking about people with kidney disease. We're talking mm. about other individuals. So we're going to let that one go. But the RDA at the moment it, depending on what country you're in, is 0.75 to 0.8 grams of protein times your body weight in kilos. That is so low. But for maintaining muscle mass and growing muscle mass, you're really starting at 1.5, 1.6, even up to, you know, for really putting on muscle mass, you're looking at 1.8 to 2.2 grams of protein times someone's body weight. Plus what people forget, well, so if you've been protein deficient, if you haven't been eating enough and you move yourself up to like 1.6 to 1.8, that's amazing. But people have to remember, they also need to be eating enough calories. And a lot of people these days are so afraid of, you know, that they're under eating, but maybe eating enough protein. And again, if you are sort of fit or have some muscle, it's going to be hard to put that muscle mass on unless you're... To put muscle mass on, you need to be in calorie excess, not deficiency. For those people just trying to tone and maintain muscle mass, okay, caloric, you know, just an equal amount of what you're burning and what you're taking in. But, you know, unless you are extremely over, unless you are overweight, I don't want to say extreme, if you're overweight and underfit, you can be in calorie deficit and still put on some muscle mass, but that's only because you're so deficit you're in such deficit of muscle mass to begin with. So only the really unfit might actually have that, oh, I can lose weight and put on muscle. But for the rest of people who are just trying to maintain and they have some good muscle, you need to be calorie equalization. Sometimes you need to be calorie excess. I mean, I'm not talking huge amounts, but hitting those protein amounts, you know, people just don't. People are always like, oh, we all overeat protein. That's I rarely see that. It, you really have to focus to get up to 1.8. Have you ever tried to get to 1.8? Yeah, it's really tough. 
Yeah, it's it's hard. And I was just about to say that in order to, for, for people, now that I'm kind of understanding where you're at as far as actually being able to put on muscle mass, not just maintain it. So the amount you're saying is about 1.8 to 2.2 even grams per kilo of body yep. weight per day. Yeah. So that's a, that's a lot. And I've, I've been trying to increase my protein, but I'm so full, I can hardly even do it. Exactly. Which is, you know, for people doing weight loss, which isn't you obviously, but that's why protein is so awesome is because that has that satiety factor to it. But yeah, I would definitely recommend, you know, one of the things I play with is trying to get people to front load their protein in the day rather than back end it. And, and again, looking at your protein sources, and this is where, you know, people are, you know, some people don't like the idea of protein powders, but protein powders are an easy way to catch up on 20 to 40 to 50 grams of protein in a day without jamming in an enormous amount of fat at the same time or other, you know, a lot of the protein foods are very high in fat or some protein foods high in saturated fat. So, you know, I like to think of protein powders as just a, I consider them a food rather than a supplement. It's like a pre-digested, yeah, food. So what does it look like when, you, when you're talking to your patients, two point, if, you're, if you're wanting them to have 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight, okay, let's say I'm, I'm 60 kilos. So what does that look like for them um, in their day? If we were aiming for two grams a day times 50, oh, we could do two grams a day times 60 kilos. That's, That's 120. 120. Yeah, 110, 120. So, you know, what does that look like? It's enormous. I mean, it depends on the size of the, like, all the way down to eggs, you know. An egg can have everywhere from kind of four to eight grams of protein, depending on the size of the egg. Um, 125 grams of most meat is about 20 to 30 grams of protein. So, you know, we do get about 10% of our protein or let me back up, vegetables contain about 10% protein on average, unless it's a what you would deem a high vegetable protein, but those are really legumes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, about 10% of your protein intake does come from your vegetables, but yeah, it's a big focus. It's, you know, eggs or, you know, one or two eggs plus some extra egg white um, in a breakfast, or maybe also pulling in some I'm a fan of, you know, turkey or chicken or I get people when they cook protein, if they're not plant-based, I mean, if they're plant-based as well, like you should do this, you know, at night when you're cooking your meat or your tofu or tempeh or whatever it is, I get them to do double and triple portions so that they have protein for breakfast and lunch that's sitting there as a leftover because it's huge. It's basically every time you eat, you need to find a protein and every time you snack, you know, and then there's the issue of you don't want to be doing your protein too frequently while you're putting on muscle mass because we now know you need at least three hours between protein hits. With protein, it, it's it's about all the amino acids, but it, the lead amino acid in protein is leucine. We used to always mm-hmm. kind of go, oh, it's branch chain amino acids. It's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. But leucine is this kind of king um, amino acid that we need a certain amount of in each hit of protein we're getting to really stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which I'm now going to call MPS. And we need leucine, you know, in a meal, you need at least two and a half, some say three grams of leucine 
per protein hit to get above this certain threshold in the blood of leucine. But then you actually need two, th at least three hours for the leucine threshold in the blood to drop below a certain level to then have another hit stimulus to go up again. And that's how we stimulate NPS more efficiently. Whereas if you just snack on protein every two hours, it's going to keep that leucine in the blood too high. And we don't have that bigger stimulus. Plus you need to be doing exercise for that stimulus as well. So it's not, leucine's not really a worry if you are an omnivore, if you are plant-based, it's a bigger worry because a lot of the plant-based um, proteins are slightly too low in leucine. And even with the protein powders, just double checking if you're buying a plant-based protein powder, have they added in extra leucine? Is the leucine per serve at least 2.5 to 3 grams? And that's mm -hmm. a big thing I think people don't do. So even from a muscle protein synthesis point of view, it's good to get that um, that no snacking kind of situation to have kind of breaks between your meals. Yeah. I mean, you can snack, but it's not about grazing constantly. We also know about inflammation with grazing and, you know, not giving the body that chance to rest and autophagy and all that stuff. But yeah, so you want at least three hours between those hits. So often with clients, I'm looking at you know, if they're trying to put on muscle, they need to be eating. So it's three meals and probably one snack. Or, you know, if people are really trying to lay down muscle, you actually do a meal, not a meal, sorry. You do a protein hit right as you go to sleep. Um, you do 20 to 40 grams of protein. Like if you haven't hit your protein amounts, you do another hit at night. And I know all the naturopaths are like, oh, but I was told not to, you know, don't eat after dinner. But if you're trying to lay down that muscle, they, you do this protein hit at night, which is again, where you do a powder or, you know, if you're not dairy intolerant, people do like a high protein yogurt or, and the research is showing that you won't gain weight from that protein, you know, because people have that fear about gaining weight. Mm -hmm. But that protein hit at night then really helps with muscle protein synthesis overnight. Interesting. And what would you say to, um, you know, fasting or, you know, time-restricted eating is quite big now. Yeah. How do you feel, how do you find kind of trying to fit all of that protein in if essentially you're only, you've only got enough time to have two meals, maybe a third kind of smaller meal, yeah. So the big thing there is how tight of a window they're going to. And I'm not a fan of super tight windows for women. If you, you followed the way I lecture, mm -hmm. um, men can go on that slightly tighter window, but again, it's tricky because we're trying to do all of these different things of biohacking our health, right? Like we're like, I'm going to do this and this and this, and they don't all always combine together very well. So, you know, I would definitely say you need an eight hour window. You know, if you're trying to put on muscle, probably a tighter window than eight hours for men is not going to help because you need to spread out these protein mm. hits. And, um, and for women, I'm a fan of like a 10 hour window of eating, um, I'm not a fan of anything tighter than that. So again, they're going to have to do slightly bigger hits when they do eat. But the trick is your body really can't, unless you've just done some massive exercise session, your body really can't utilize more than about 40 grams of pure protein from one meal. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so you can't be doing 
60, 70 grams of protein at a meal. Hey, I can't even imagine trying to digest that. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like going out to a Brazilian meat restaurant. Or yeah. like um, so, and you know, if you haven't done a big workout or if you're a smaller person, that amount might even be a little bit less. Or if you've only worked out your upper body, you know, the research is saying you don't need such a big protein hit if you've only done a small small muscles um, in a workout. So, you know, 40 is where there are instances where people can utilize more than 40, but it's so rare. It's not worth, that would be a totally different lecture. So, mm-hmm. but sometimes I also hear other practitioners are like, oh, I've heard I can't utilize more than 20 or 30. And that's actually incorrect. The number's 40. Mm, okay. So what about if, if someone's in front of you with type 2 diabetes or some kind of metabolic condition, maybe insulin pre-diabetes, insulin resist, but slight insulin resistance, is it still that you know, 1.8 to 2.2 grams? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. As, as long as their kidneys are all right, and especially mm-hmm. if they're trying to lose weight. Most of the research on weight loss these days is looking at increasing protein, and you will often see the suggestions for weight loss sitting around 1.8 to 2.2. So whether it's muscle mass or weight loss, we're looking at those same amounts. Yeah. Dr. Dom also recommends similar amounts of protein. Well, I guess just for the context, I work with elite athletes, you know, 95% of my of my work. Um, and so we would be seeing protein intakes upwards of two gram per kilo in most athletes that I work with. And and to be honest, I would probably be recommending around that around amount. So two to two point five gram per kilo in sports that are that are contact based sports, that are, you know, that the strength based sports is where I often see most of them sitting anyway um, but just from a recovery perspective that is what I would um, intend to recommend also in older populations um, I actually think we need to be aiming you know for around 1 to 1.5 grams in elderly because of, of the decline in, in muscle mass that we see with age um, so when we're younger when we talk about what stimulates muscle protein synthesis it can be both the protein intake, which is high in certain amino acids such as leucine, um, but also the, the the response to an increase in insulin from any food, from carbohydrates, etc. Both of those things can actually increase that mTOR pathway, can stimulate mTOR pathway and increase muscle protein synthesis when we're younger. When we get older, the impact of substrates like carbohydrates and that increase in insulin actually doesn't have the same uh, effect on our mTOR pathway. So you really actually need that protein intake and that leucine intake in particular to stimulate that pathway. And that's why you might see younger people, um, you know, young teenage boys that you think, geez, they're not eating that great, but they're still able to gain some muscle. And that's just because they've got fuel in the system, even if it's not quite the right fuel or or the right substrate. But as we get older, that relationship actually changes. And that's why protein is so important in elderly um, as well. So I do recommend higher amounts than than what our RDIs are. Also, if someone is, say, trying to to lose weight, uh, as an example, but because of that, their protein requirement needs to stay really quite high so that we don't risk losing muscle mass. 
And in those situations, we might actually be aiming for, you know, two and a half to three grams per kilo if we're actually getting energy down um, whilst trying to maintain muscle mass. And so it will really vary on the person that you're that you're working with. I mean, here in Australia, we don't tend to have a problem so much of inadequate protein. We do consume a fair bit of, of protein. I think it does get harder um, in elderly. We find it probably drops off. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the key issue is probably the spread and the distribution, which we know is essential to muscle protein synthesis and maintaining muscle mass rather than the total amount. And that's probably where I see the biggest sort of challenge in a lot of people and athletes as well is that we're probably not nailing that distribution over the day to enhance our muscle mass. It's interesting point you make about distribution. So at each meal, what is the maximum that you would recommend people eat in order to be able to use it? So what our um, key studies have shown us is that uh, muscle protein synthesis with protein intake will increase almost like in a linear fashion until you hit about 20 grams. And then from 20 to 40 grams, it starts to plateau. So I would be saying, say, for athletes or bigger bodied people, you're sort of aiming for that 30, 40 grams per meal or eating occasion. But the normal person, you may be aiming more for that 20 grams uh, at a meal time, 20 to 30, and maybe aiming for that 10 to 20 at a snack time. But it really is that even spread coming in over the day that's going to be most important because every time you eat in that fed state, that's when you have um, the abundance of amino acids in your amino acid pool. You have that leucine come in and you're able to stimulate that muscle protein synthesis. And you want to do that over the day because otherwise if you don't have those amino acids in the system what will happen is that the 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 pool that you do have will the organs will prioritize those amino acids and the muscles will be i guess what's left out and so if we're talking muscle mass we want to make sure we've got an abundance at different points what were most points in time so that we can stimulate that process you've talked a lot about leucine can you talk to me about leucine and muscle you know improvements in muscle mass Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, leucine is almost like the key that starts the mTOR pathway. And the mTOR pathway is what is the pathway to muscle protein synthesis. So the initial chemical reactions that that start that process and leucine is the key in that. Um, And so essentially, we want our diet to be, you know, rich in leucine and, and it tends to need to be at a certain threshold so that we can start that process. And reality is, if you have a diet that that's rich in protein, um, any complete protein, so proteins that come from an animal source that have all of our essential amino acids, which is what we get from the diet, should contain a decent amount of, of leucine, that it shouldn't be a, too much of a concern that we're not getting in enough. I guess what you don't want to do is then just focus on leucine because leucine is important to start the process definitely. And we need about two and a half to three grams um, is sort of like the threshold to start that. But you don't want to just focus on leucine and and not think about complete proteins because you actually, once the process is started, you do need your pool of your complete proteins and essential amino acids to actually make sure that you're building that that protein that that muscle mass. So it's important, but it's not the the, the whole picture. 
I'd love to hear your comments as well on, on if you've got a vegetarian or a vegan patient mm. getting up around those higher protein levels. It's really difficult, um, especially with vegans more so. I think with vegetarians, you know, you can use things like your egg products, your dairy products, and you do have some options. It is really hard with vegans, not impossible. And, and I say that to, to athletes a lot. If, you know, if someone um, says to me that they're vegan and it's for their own reasons I would never try and um, and persuade otherwise but if someone decides that they want to be vegan because they've heard that it's better for their performance say or heard that it's better for their health then I would question that because um, you know there's not a there's not a great deal of evidence that that says one way or the other with that it comes down to personal preference a lot of the time and anecdotal sort of evidence more so than anything especially when it comes to performance um, but it is really difficult because when we know the difference with our proteins, whether it be from a, a plant-based versus an animal-based, our, our animal-based proteins are giving us that complete profile, which means that you're getting all of your essential amino acids, again, high in that leucine. Your plant-based often don't. Some soy-based products can be complete and, and can give you uh, more of that mix, but it's not going to be in, in the same amount. And, and most of them, again, would be missing certain essential amino acids. And so what you have to do do is work with somebody who can actually put together a bit of a plan for you to say, if you're eating this type of protein, make sure you're eating it with that. So it might be, you know, a, a grain with a legume as an example, or, you know, a soy with some corn or something that's going to give you a mix of amino acids. And then just really understanding that you, the amount that you need to get the same with animal products is different. And then, and we do need to acknowledge that. So it, really is just about careful planning um with athletes that i work with that are vegan in particular but potentially also vegetarian we would have to supplement with like a vegan based protein powder or something like that to make sure that we can actually get in the amounts that we need for recovery and to make sure that we're able to um to stimulate the, the, that muscle protein synthesis and to get us in the best position to do that so not impossible but but most people that aren't on top of it, I question whether they'd be meeting not only just the overall amount, but the quality of the protein as well. So what's your view then, um, given that on, on time-restricted eating? I know maybe you probably don't do it in your population of, of people, but just based on that, what are your views on time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting? It's interesting because I, I do use intermittent fasting with some athletes. I think um, oh. it ha we have to make sure that it doesn't compromise performance. But with an athlete, I would always recommend using something like a branched-chain amino acid in the fasting period. So that we've actually got a leucine um, intake coming mm -hmm. without actually having a calorie associated with that and, and almost breaking the fast. So, and that's to maintain muscle mass essentially. So we would use products that are very natural and, and just your branch chains with the higher leucine. Um, and almost, you know, the same way you'd have water or a black coffee over the fasting period, you could have a, a branch chain amino acid for those that are potentially concerned about um, or, or trying to preserve their muscle mass. And that could be for anyone, couldn't it? Not not just necessarily athletes, anyone who's kind of struggling to get that amount of leucine in, in the day or enough protein because they're just so full, um, they could use that if they wanted to in intermittent fast. 
Absolutely, they could. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I think you have to think about why you're restricted eating or, or intermittent fasting. What is the purpose? Um, and you know that there's there's a, a different um, research shows different things in this space, and, and it is still quite a, a new area where no doubt we'll see a lot more. But is it for metabolic health? Is it for weight loss? Um, is it for training adaptations? And again, the literature says different things about different areas associated with that but I think you need to ask yourself what is the purpose of of intermittent fasting and therefore is it worth in a sense potentially compromising um you know muscle mass or uh, or adequate fueling for some populations it may not be appropriate you know in, in certain elderly populations you probably wouldn't recommend too much restrictive eating versus those that are you know uh, have a chronic disease or or um you know it, metabolic health is is compromised and there's some good evidence to show that it could actually assist with that Next week, we'll dive into insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, the drivers and the testing considerations with dietitian Robbie Clark, GP Dr Lucy Burns and naturopath Karen Squires. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.